Hello, and welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. So for Father's Day a few years ago, our daughter Julia uh, arranged to kidnap me after this worship service. Um, She wanted to take me as a surprise to do some fun outing. Um, She was very excited. She kept asking if I'd guessed what it was, and I said no. So we headed up Highway 1, took 156 onto 101, 156 toward Hollister, and she kept looking over, did you figure it out? And I said, I'm clueless, until we pulled up at the airport in front of the building that said Skydive Hollister. (laughs) Now I realized skydiving would not be everyone in this room's top choice for what to do, but I had always wanted to try it, so I was really excited. So we went inside and went to check in with the cashier, and Julie was wondering a little bit how safe it was, so I just kind of playfully said to the the cashier, so uh, what percentage of people who went skydiving died? And she said, oh, 3%. (laughs) I looked at Julia, and I did some quick calculations in my head, and I thought, 3% didn't sound right. I didn't think the state of California would let them keep going if it was 3%. Um, But I really, really wanted to skydive, and... Gambler that I am, I figured, well, you know, 3% is not that bad. 97 out of 100 make it. But still skeptical, I asked her, so how many people have skydived with you guys today? She said, oh, about 130. I said, well, which four died? Uh, She said, what? No one died? Only 3% died all last year. Over 300,000 people skydived and only three people died. Oh, okay, thank you. That sounds really safe. Now, Julia had previously purchased our tickets online, so we met our instructors, received some training, and um, we were going to have an instructor strapped to our back. Um, They would control everything. They would pull the ripcord open at the right time. They had packed their own parachutes. They'd done this many times, and they had a reserve chute in case the first one failed. Now, my instructor was about 6'3", 6'4", and he had jumped like 3,000 times because they keep records. And we got in this little plane with a big wide door on the side, and there were 18 of us kind of packed in there, and he strapped to my back. It took off. It climbed really steeply, really powerfully. Um, Now, Julia had paid for us to do the extra high jump, 18,000 feet, which is about three miles high, and she and her instructor would be the third jumpers out of the plane. So they opened the door, and the first people jumped, and then Julia got scared, and she looked over at me. And I don't think she was so scared that she would not have gone ahead now that she already paid. Um, But she really didn't have any choice because the people behind her couldn't go unless she went. And she strapped this instructor and he's going. So she screamed as they fell out of the airplane door. It wasn't like really a blood curdling, uh, totally panic scream, more like a roller coaster type scream or actually it was probably in between. Um, And then a few seconds later, my instructor took us out the door. And it was a beautiful day with a fantastic view. My instructor, you know, he'd move this arm that way and we'd turn over here and look that way and he'd move that way and we'd turn over here and look that way and he showed me everything and I just, I thought it was a blast. I loved it. At the right time he opened, pulled the ripcord and we coasted down, you know. There's really not that much to see in Hollister. Um, <laughs> and we floated to the ground where he engineered a smooth, perfect, gentle landing. Now when we got back to the hangar, Julia's instructor who, not like my instructor who had 3,000 jumps, he had about 300 jumps. 
And he explained that he'd been pretty nervous before the jump because on his previous jump, his main chute had failed and he had to use his reserve. And I just kept thinking, only 3%. I want you to imagine that you're at 18,000 feet in an airplane and the pilot comes on the intercom and he says, we're out of fuel and the plane is going to crash. I can keep it gliding for a minute or two. There are plenty of parachutes. They are the most reliable parachutes in the world. Everyone strap on a parachute and jump. Well, would you jump out of the plane without a parachute? Would you quickly start trying to put together your clothes and maybe one of those blankets on the airplane and jump with that? Make your own parachute. Or would you strap on one of the most reliable parachutes in the world and jump? Jesus said, we'll put this on screen, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now being on the road or the way to destruction is similar to being on a plane that is going to crash. Would you make your own parachute, or would you strap on the reliable parachute that's being offered to you. Now last week we read the following passage from the book of Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What We've all chosen at some point that road, that way of destruction. And the plane, metaphorically our soul, is going down. So what are our options? According to the Bible, Jesus Christ is the only parachute that works. Christ and Christ alone. And today we are looking at the Reformation principle, Christ alone. This principle is intertwined with the two previous weeks, faith alone and grace alone. Um, We are commemorating the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation period. Why should you even care about today's message? Especially if you're in high school. I mean, it's like 500 years ago. Well, first of all, you don't want to make your own parachute or even try, and a lot of people are. And secondly, life is much more beautiful when you live out of the principle Christ alone. We're going to put on screen a text. It was written by the Apostle Paul. That's why it starts saying that he's Jewish. Would you read it with me out loud? Ready? Here we go. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And we'll leave that on screen for a while. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, Paul's referring to the the law of Moses. Uh, You guys familiar with the Ten Commandments? What are some of the Ten Commandments? Uh, No other gods before him, not his name in vain. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Don't lie. Or as Jesus encapsulated it, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the Apostle Paul Before he became the Apostle Paul and his name was Saul, he had been a devout Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, they had taken, Jesus took the Mosaic law and he said, love God, love your neighbors yourself. They had taken the law of Moses and they had put it into 613 rules. 
that if you kept these rules externally, then they figured you were perfect. And Paul kept them extremely well, better than anybody else, but he did not have a loving and gracious relationship with God. And he hated most people. He hated all Gentiles, and he looked, considered himself better than the Jews who were not Pharisees. Now, according to Jesus, the Jewish religious leaders had misunderstood the law because they hadn't really realized that it actually required that they love God and love people. In the Sermon on the Mount, after making that very obvious, Jesus says, and we'll put this up with the other one, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And no mere mortal is perfect. You're not perfect. I'm certainly not perfect. No one is. God tells us through the Apostle Paul, by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, last week we used the metaphor of a raging river, that you're like a person, that we all by nature, we're like a person that's already can't swim, we're going down a raging river, we've already swallowed water and we've passed out, and Jesus is like someone who spiritually jumps in and rescues us and resuscitates us. Spiritually, that's what Jesus does, and Jesus does it alone. Jesus is the only parachute that works. All of us are like sheep that have gone astray. We are all sinners. We cannot save ourselves, and we can't cobble together at the last minute a parachute out of a shirt and some pants and maybe a blanket. Our own flawed good works cannot save us. Now, one of my best friends is a surgeon. Um, I think he graduated top of his class at Johns Hopkins. He uh, did part, one of his uh, residencies at Emory, and he does a lot of reconstructive work when people are in accidents and uh, for birth defects and things like that. Um, he became the expert that he is by spending 10,000 hours of careful, purposeful practice. That's what the experts say today, that if you... Uh, it takes 10,000 hours of effortful, purposeful practice to become a world-class expert. It could be at a sport, could be playing an instrument, could be surgery, there are a lot of different things. So if I was in a car crash and it messed up my face, and, but it could be reconstructed, I would want my friend to do it. But I would be a fool if I tried to do it myself. Then you seen that commercial on TV with the guy that he's doing his own appendectomy? And then he goes out and rents a car because he likes to do, be in control. Yeah, pretty silly. When the reformers talked about Christ alone being able to justify us, they meant that only Jesus could justify us and that all of our justification is accomplished by him. We do not accomplish any part of it. Why is that? Well, partly, even in our best moments, we're always flawed. There's always something in our motives that's mixed. We never completely love God. We never completely love people around us. Also, when the divine Son of God, Jesus, was born as a baby, he did not share our weaknesses and flaws. He was not born with a selfish and self-centered heart. He, was, he did not have a sinful nature. He was able to choose and did choose to truly love the Father and to truly love people at all times. See, since Adam rebelled, everybody since then, all of us have inherited this sinful nature, but not Jesus. So he's the only one who could not have his own sins to pay for. See, we all are flawed. We cannot throw together our own parachute. We cannot reconstruct our own face after a car accident. We simply do not have the ability, once we've passed out in the raging river, to rescue ourselves. We do not have the ability 
to accomplish our own justification. To think that we can at all even contribute a little bit is to be too proud. To think better of ourselves than we should and to diminish Jesus. We're going to put a a little phrase on the screen. I hope you'll memorize it. In theology, the scholars teach us to say that we believe in the person and work of Christ. And in the next few minutes, I'm going to take about three, four minutes, and I'm going to explain a lot of stuff that we believe. And if you can grab a bunch of this and keep it for life, you'll know the gospel and you won't be fooled. What do we believe about his person? That he's God the Son, that he's divine, he's perfect. He's part of the Trinity along with the Father and the Son, worthy of worship, creator and sustainer, always existed, was not created. What do we believe about his work? That he lived a perfect life, a heroic life. He helped thousands of people. He loved them. He healed. He taught. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He fed them with a few loaves and fishes. He was blameless and innocent with no sin of his own to pay for. That's part of his work. Also, all of the good, perfect, noble things that Jesus did, that he lived, his character, his actions, all of that, in theology, they tell us that that is his righteousness and it is, here's a big word, imputed to us. A good way to think of it is that just like last week we talked about owing God $20 billion because of our sins, well, this is Jesus crediting to your spiritual bank account $20 billion of righteousness. Because everything that he has becomes yours. His work on the cross was also that he took our sins upon him, experienced the punishment they deserved, suffered so that we wouldn't have to, and substituted himself in our place. That's all part of his work. And then on the third day, more of his work, he conquered death for himself and for us. Defeated death when he rose again. Now, if he were not the person he is, God in the flesh, then he could not have lived this perfect life. He would not have been strong enough. He would not have been perfect enough. He would not have been strong enough to experience what was basically infinite suffering in our place in a finite period of time. If he were not the person he is, Jesus could not have accomplished the work he did. It's Christ alone. He did what you and I could never do, not any part of it. So when we think about the essentials of Christianity, and different denominations disagree about some of the important and peripheral stuff, but when we think about the essentials, we're talking about belief in the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And if someone redefines who Jesus is and says, well, he was just a good teacher, a nice moral teacher, that's no longer part of the essentials. Or if they redefine the work of Jesus, well, he didn't really die for us on the cross, that's no longer part of the essentials that Christians have always believed. Now, one other thing, and this is something that I will repeat to you fairly regularly because I want you to memorize it. When we say the word believe, like you've got to believe in Jesus, our society has one definition of the word believe. The New Testament has another one, and so a good way to remember it is the four C's, four things that begin with the letter C. Because New Testament belief involves, first of all, belief in correct content, again, the person and work of Christ, that 
He wasn't just a merely a good teacher or a God masquerading as a man, but that he was both God and man. That he died for our sins, resurrected. Correct content also means you have to believe something about yourself. That you're not good enough. That you're a sinner who needs a savior. But it's not enough to simply believe in correct content. And that's what many people out there in our society think is fine. We need to also be convinced that it's true. Now sometimes someone will start their faith journey with a leap of faith, we call it. Or with just betting on Jesus like Pascal said in the, in the wager. Or just giving him a try. But it doesn't stop there. True biblical faith becomes increasingly certain. Now during the Reformation, Calvin, great theologian Calvin, was called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Those of you who are aware of the Pentecostal movement the last hundred years or so would think, oh, so he was Pentecostal? No. He was called the theologian of the Spirit because he, was, he developed the whole understanding, a lot of it from 1 John and, and some other places, that the Holy Spirit is who gives us our certainty. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and convinces us that God's word is true, that we are loved and forgiven, that God is with us. Now, this doesn't mean that believers never go through difficult times of doubt, but in general, what we see over time is that our convictions grow. We become increasingly certain. But it is not enough to have correct content and to have conviction. Who has correct content and conviction? The devil. The devil, he has complete conviction that, what Jesus, that Jesus died and rose again. He, he saw it. He knows the correct content, but what he doesn't have is commitment. He doesn't have allegiance to Jesus as his savior and as his king. Now, whenever we have correct content, conviction, and commitment, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and begins to change us from the inside out. We call it the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We become more like Jesus. Everyone with this kind of belief, with the first three C's, then experiences the fourth one, change. Some change more rapidly. We change more rapidly if we cooperate. If we, instead of just sitting on the couch watching television, we diligently engage in things like prayer and service and a small group and Bible study and serving. But we all change, some more rapidly, some less. But that doesn't earn any of our salvation. We are changed and we become, when we start to do good works, not to be saved, but because we already have received salvation and have received the Holy Spirit into us. Do you understand the difference? It's cause and effect. We become changed because we have received salvation and the Holy Spirit, not we receive salvation because we're behaving. We are justified through faith alone, by grace alone. Christ alone accomplished all of our justification. We accomplished none of it. It is a free gift so that no one can boast that they accomplished any of it. All right, were you able to hang in there for all that? Why is life more beautiful when you live by the principle that Christ and Christ alone has justified you, made you right with God, taken all the punishment you deserve and given you his righteousness? Why is life more beautiful? Well, first of all, because instead of worrying about whether or not you're doing enough, being good enough, which we never are, you can have peace with God. You can be at peace because you know that Jesus has done it all. Do you know one of the most difficult things about being a Muslim is? A really devout Muslim 
you can never know if you've been good enough. You can never know if you've satisfied Allah. It's part of their theology. But in Christianity, the apostle writes, and we'll put it on screen, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you to be at peace with him. He wants you to know that you've been forgiven and you're in his family. See, even though Paul was considered to be the, basically the perfect, most zealous Pharisee ever, after he met Jesus, he considered his former achievements to be, he says literally, dung, horse manure, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. When you put all of your trust in Christ alone for salvation, you get peace. You get a loving, gracious relationship with God, and that is the beautiful life that God has for you, not one of worry. Now, this is not something like last week that you walk out of here today and you never have to think about it again. This is something that you need to develop the habit of every day, perhaps three times a day, being reminded that it is Christ alone. Because we all tend to revert back to wanting to earn something, to our pride, wanting to be good enough, and then worrying whether or not we are. And we have to remind ourselves constantly, Christ, Christ alone, he did it all. And, we, and one of the reasons we gather every week as a body is to remind each other of the gospel. It's Christ, it's Christ alone. You're not good enough, I'm not good enough. Christ did it all. Amen, be at peace. Years ago, there was a high wire performer who stretched a cable across the cliffs, just Niagara Falls comes down and the cliffs right on the other side, just past it. And uh, he, the, cra- the crowd came out from the town and they watched as he took one of those balance beams and he, and he walked across and then, he, and then he walked back. And then he took a wheelbarrow and put a couple hundred pounds of cement in it and he, and he walked across the cable with the wheelbarrow and then he walked back. And the crowds were cheering, they were clapping. And he focused in on one young man who was enthusiastic and clapping and cheering. And as he focused on him, the crowd kind of quieted down. He said to the young man, you think I can take that wheelbarrow across and back? Of course I do, I just saw you do it. Well, maybe you just think you saw it. We all saw it, you were amazing. So you really believe I can go across and back with a couple hundred pounds in the wheelbarrow? Yes, I don't know why you keep asking. Of course I believe you can do it. Okay then, get in the wheelbarrow. See, that's what commitment looks like. It's not one foot with Jesus and one foot on our own works. It's all with Jesus. If Christ alone can rescue a person who is on the road to destruction, if Christ alone can rescue a person who is spiritually drowning in a raging river, if Christ alone can be your spiritual parachute as your soul goes down, if Christ alone can reconstruct your spiritual face after all that you and life have done to your soul, if Christ alone can carry you across the deep and wide spiritual canyon that separates you from God, if you believe that, then get in the wheelbarrow. Put all your trust in him, all in what he has done and who he is. Remind yourself each day that you are at peace with God because of Christ alone, and just love him back and enjoy your life with God. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or 
any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.